Hello and welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we travel a week-long route through forests and bogs, by rivers and beautiful lakes, as we climb higher and higher, staying in rustic mountain huts, even though we are almost at the equator. Finally, even crossing two glaciers before reaching a summit that is higher than 5,100 meters up, almost 17,000 feet, to reach the top of Margarita Peak, one of the highest peaks in Africa. Yes, we are finally going trekking in Africa. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we hike the Renzori Central Circuit in the Renzori Mountains of Uganda. Hello and welcome to the show, everyone. As always, feel free to reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com with ideas for future episodes. I want to start the show today by making a special announcement that I'm really excited about. This episode of Trails Worth Hiking is sponsored by our good friends at Outdoor Herbivore, who make tasty vegetarian and vegan backpacking meals. Although, as I always say, you don't need to be a vegetarian or a vegan to enjoy them. Everyone will love them. Up until this episode, I've mentioned Outdoor Herbivore uh, because I love their products and they had graciously provided a discount code to Trailsworth Hiking listeners, which I always enjoyed passing along to you as a listener. But now Outdoor Herbivore has agreed to sponsor the show, which is a great help to, to me and the show. So thanks to Kim and her team at Outdoor Herbivore for sponsoring Trailsworth Hiking. And I hope that you as listeners will give their products a chance and show Kim that listeners are appreciative of their support of the show. Outdoor Herbivore makes tasty backpacking meals, as I've said. They use quality ingredients. Their meals have plenty of calories so that a hungry hiker will have a fulfilling meal. A lot of the brands that you buy out there through bigger retailers often have very few calories per serving so that a two-person meal is really only a one-person meal. That is not the case with the outdoor herbivore meals. They have high number of calories, many of them over 600 calories per meal. They also boil in a bag, meaning you can just open up the packaging, pour in hot water, seal it back up after stirring, and wait 10 minutes and your dinner is ready. Also, Outdoor Herbivore carries bulk ingredients, so if you are someone who likes to make your own backpacking meals, you can choose the kind of ingredients you want from Outdoor Herbivore and make your own concoctions, make your own meals. And I also wanted to mention that Outdoor Herbivore ships worldwide, so if you are a listener far away from California, where Outdoor Herbivore is based, they will ship to you. I basically take Outdoor Herbivore meals on every backpacking trip I go on. I have taken their meals on several trips already this year, and I'll be going backpacking again very shortly and plan to bring outdoor herbivore meals as well on that trip. I think I've said before, uh, one of the meals I like the most is the chickpea sesame zeti. It's a tasty pasta, a vegan meal uh, that has plenty of calories, very filling, a little bit spicy, which I love. So there you go. Thanks to Outdoor Herbivore for supporting the show, and I look forward to that relationship growing as the show continues to grow. And as Outdoor Herbivore supports the show, I hope, as I said, that you will support them. The discount code for Trailsworth Hiking listeners, of course, is TWH10P, so Trailsworth Hiking 10%. So enter the discount code TWH10P to get 10% off your order at OutdoorHerbivore.com. All right, let's jump into the show. The guest on this episode is Timothy Latim. Tim is from Kampala, Uganda, and is a member of the hiking group Mountain Slayers Uganda, which he will talk about in the conversation. Tim has hiked the Renzori circuit three times. Uh, One of them was with a couple of guys who were 
undertaking an ambitious attempt to uh, go for a speed record on the route, which is pretty insane to try to do this trek in just over a day. We'll hear all about Tim's adventures on the Renzori circuit in the conversation today. So thanks to Timothy LaTim for coming on the show. And thanks also to listener Maital Kupfer. Maital reached out to me to tell me about the Renzori Central Circuit. She's a listener of the show and had been hiking with the Mountain Slayers Uganda while living in Uganda for the last several years and put me in touch with Timothy LaTim to talk about this trek. So thank you, Maital. Really appreciate it. And thanks for being a listener of the show. All right. So a lot of times at the beginning of the episode, I like to talk a little bit about why I decided to do this episode. One, of course, was that Maital reached out to tell me about this route that seemed really interesting. But a big reason I wanted to do this episode, of course, is that Africa has a lot to offer hikers. And so I'm excited to finally be covering a trek there. Second, as much as I like to cover the big name brand treks, I also love to cover ones that are just as good or better than a lot of those more well-known treks, but may be overlooked by most hikers. So for example, when I went to Nepal, I hiked the Manaslu circuit. I could have hiked the more famous Annapurna circuit or the popular Everest base camp hike, but I didn't. I wanted something that was just as beautiful, but a little less known, a little less crowded, a little bit more uh, novel and interesting in my view. It doesn't mean that Annapurna or Everest Base Camp aren't great treks, as I'm sure they are, and I will definitely cover those treks on the show, and I may even hike those treks someday if, if I get the opportunity. But I guess I just love an underdog, and compared to Mount Kilimanjaro, for example, which I will no doubt cover eventually, the Renzoris are an underdog. So I'm excited to have learned about them and to be covering them on this episode. So let's start with talking about Uganda. Uganda is a country in East Africa. Going east to west, it's between Kenya and the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's got South Sudan to the north and Rwanda and Tanzania to the south. Although Uganda is landlocked, it has Lake Victoria as a big part of the southern part of the country. Uganda has about 42 million people, and its capital is Kampala, where Timothy Latim lives. For the last several hundred years, there have been primarily Bantu-speaking peoples in the southern and southwestern part of the country, which is where this hike is focused on. But uh, more generally in Uganda today, Swahili and English are both official languages. In the pre-colonial era, Uganda was a number of different kingdoms. And the history of those kingdoms is, I'm sure, worth discussing, but is really beyond the scope of this show. But just wanted you to be aware that pre-modern times, it really wasn't a collective country. There is significant British influence. From 1894 to 1962, there was the Protectorate of Uganda. So a protectorate in the British system is actually not a colony. So there was some self-rule that was maintained by Uganda during the time that it was, in essence, controlled by the British. And it was part of the British Empire until 1962, when it became independent. But like a lot of countries that were formerly part of the British Empire, it remained part of the British Commonwealth of countries. I think many Westerners who have any familiarity with Uganda may, in more recent memory, think of Idi Amin, who was a military dictator from 1971 to 1979, and that dictatorship ended uh, in a war with Tanzania. Currently, the president is Yoweri Museveni, who has been president since 1986. So the current president has been in power for quite a long time. So that's a, just a short peek of an overview of Uganda itself, but let's talk about the Renzori Mountains. And the Renzoris have also been called the Mountains of the Moon. So to understand why the Renzoris are called the Mountains of the Moon, you have to go way back. The Arabian merchant Diogenes reported traveling inland from East Africa for 25 days to mountains that were the source of the Nile. 
and he reported that the natives called the mountain range the Mountains of the Moon, possibly just because of the snow that they had on them. And later, the Greek mathematician and geographer Ptolemy produced maps that reported their location based on the uh, information that Diogenes had provided. So these were the mountains that in antiquity were believed to have been the source of the Nile. And it turns out, in fact, that the Renzoris are a source of the Nile. They are not the only source, but they are one of the sources of the Nile River. The streams that come off the snow and glacier-capped high peaks of the Renzoris eventually do feed into the Nile River. The Renzori Mountains in Uganda and also in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the, the mountains overlap both countries, are the highest mountains in the world not formed by volcanic activity or plate tectonics. So no volcanoes made these mountains so high, and it wasn't you know one plate crashing into another plate like in many other mountain ranges of the world. Instead, the Renzoris were made by an uplift of big blocks of, of igneous granite, quartzite, gneiss, and amphibolite. All right, so the Renzoris are about 75 to 80 miles long, so that's about 120 to 130 kilometers, and about 30 to 40 miles wide, or 50 to 65 kilometers wide. Margarita Peak on Mount Stanley is the tallest peak at 16,000 762 feet, or 5,109 meters. And the Renzoris lie just north of the equator. So if you were in the lower parts of the mountains, obviously it's going to be a very different experience climate-wise than in the higher parts of the mountains. Mount Stanley and Margarita Peak is the third highest mountain in Africa after Kilimanjaro and Mount Kenya. As I mentioned, there are glaciers at the higher elevations of the Renzoris. In 1906, there were 43 named glaciers in the Renzoris. 100 years later, in 2005, less than half were left, and they occupied only about 20% of the space they once occupied 100 years before. So the glaciers, while still there, are disappearing quickly. As you might imagine, as I mentioned a moment ago, being at the equator, there are lots of different vegetation zones as you go up in elevation. It starts in tropical rainforest and ends up in an alpine zone at the top. And on the way, it goes through grassland, montane, bamboo, heather, and then ultimately an Afro-alpine zone. The fauna there is uh, varied and interesting. There are Chimpanzees, though many less today than there once were. Forest elephants also live in the Renzoris. Again, very reduced in numbers. There's Hyrax, there's Leopard, there's the Lost Monkey. There's also the Renzori Duiker, which is a small antelope that's only found in the Renzoris, and the Renzori Otter. The people who live in and around the Renzoris are the Bakonzo people. They live mostly on the lower slopes, and they are a Bantu-speaking people, as I mentioned a bit earlier. The Bantu-speaking people live in this region. Their origin is not entirely clear. One article I found reported that they originally came from the Congo several hundred years ago, but I'm not sure if that's accurate. They have been described in some of the information I saw as small, short, stout, dark-skinned people, uh, also described as very industrious and self-reliant. And apparently the word Renzori means rainmaker in their language. One of their uh, central parts of their religious activity is the central spirit Kitasamba, which is the king of the mountains and resides in the Renzoris. The Bakonzo people practice subsistence agriculture and farm millet, yams, beans, potatoes, and bananas, among other things. I'm not exactly clear on how many Bakonzo people there are. I saw numbers everywhere from 30,000 to 800,000. And so I really don't know. But, you know, there was also another number I saw that said in the early 90s, the census reported about 350,000, I think. So anywhere upward to maybe 800,000 people uh, belong to this group of peoples called the Bakonzo. I mentioned that the highest peak, Margarita Peak, is on... Mount Stanley. And I want to mention briefly why it's called Mount Stanley. 
So Mount Stanley refers to Henry Morton Stanley, and he was the first modern European to see the Renzoris. Henry Morton Stanley was Welsh originally and was born John Rowlands. He had a tough early life, losing both his parents at a young age and then his grandfather, who was raising him, and ultimately ended up an orphan. And then at age 18, moved to the United States to New Orleans. He met a merchant there who sort of took him in and was like a father to him. And that merchant's last name was Stanley. And so ultimately, John Rollins changed his name to Henry Morton Stanley. Interestingly, he fought in the American Civil War. First, he fought for the Confederacy. And then he was captured. And then later fought for the Union. So he ended up fighting on both sides of the American Civil War. After the war, though, he became a journalist. And where you may have heard of Stanley is associated with what happened early in his journalistic career. In 1869, the New York Herald sent Stanley to find British explorer and missionary David Livingstone, who hadn't been heard from in six years. I've also heard his name pronounced Livingston more commonly, so I'll go with that. Livingston had been looking for years for the source of the Nile and had disappeared and been gone for six years, and nobody had heard from him. And so this newspaper hired Stanley to go find Livingston. And he did eventually find Livingston in 1871, two years later, on the shores of Lake Tanganyika, and supposedly greeted him with the now famous words, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Now, this may have been made up later to spice up the story, to add a little wry humor to it. You know, I guess you can imagine the scene, right? Um, These are the only two Westerners probably anywhere in this part of Africa. And so Livingston would have stood out from the Africans he was with, and it would have had to have been Livingston. And others have sort of joked that the greeting sounded like the way you might greet someone in a, uh, you know, a highfalutin British club or something. And so, you know, he walks into this remote area, finding this man who's been missing for six years and greets him as if they've just uh, shown up at the, you know, their local club together. But the reality is that supposed greeting may have been made up later uh, to make the story more interesting. Apparently it wasn't written down in the journals that were found, so it may not have happened. But let's, let's assume it did because it's more fun that way. Livingston had been sick for four years when Stanley found him and actually died only a couple of years later. Stanley went back to Africa on multiple adventures uh, after that, uh, including on trips to continue what Livingston was doing to find the source of the Nile. In 1889, one of his subsequent trips, uh, he identified the Renzoris and became the first modern European to see them. Apparently, the Renzoris actually could have been visible to other Westerners before that, but they're often covered in clouds and mist, apparently, and hadn't been seen. Stanley is a controversial figure today because of the way he reportedly treated the African porters who worked with him on his expeditions. He was apparently quite brutal, or at least told stories to make himself seem that way, which at the time may have been a sort of positive thing to have done in his mind to make himself seem more impressive, but it's not clear if he actually was that tough on his porters uh, or if it was just storytelling. But in any event, you know, there's a lot of controversy today around whether he's someone who should be admired or not. I won't take sides in that debate, but I'll just say that today, Mount Stanley in the Renzoris is named after him. In 1994, UNESCO listed Renzori National Park on its World Heritage List, of properties worthy of being recognized as important to world heritage. Renzori Mountains National Park was recognized for having stunning views of glaciers and snow-capped mountains just kilometers from the equator and being the highest and most permanent source of the Nile River. UNESCO mentioned that it had a multitude of fast-flowing rivers, magnificent waterfalls, and stratified vegetation, and was exceptionally scenic and beautiful, and contained the richest montane flora, in Africa. The Renzoris were made a national park in 1991, but as I think I alluded to earlier when comparing it to Kilimanjaro, there has been surprisingly little uh, tourist activity there. For example, in 2017, 
about 50,000 people tried to reach the summit of Kilimanjaro. But in the Renzori's in the same year, only 693 people tried to reach some of the higher elevation locations, which is less than 1.5% of the number of people that tried to go to the summit of Kilimanjaro. So in relative terms, the Renzori's are still relatively little known and little explored by Westerners. One thing of note from recent history is in May 2020, there was heavy flooding in the Renzori's. There was a lot of rain, there were landslides, and ultimately a river got dammed from landslides and then that dam broke and the resulting flood killed eight people and displaced thousands. It washed away dozens of houses, a school, a medical clinic, and bridges. And of course, the landslides and the rain also buried and washed out trails, which affects the tourist industry there greatly. Since that time, the guide companies have been working very hard to clear the trails and rebuild them. All right, with that introduction, let's go to my conversation with Timothy Latim about the Renzori Central Circuit. Tim Latim, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Uh, the pleasure is mine, Jeremy. The pleasure is all mine. Thanks for having me. So you are a born and bred Ugandan, and you live in the capital of Kampala, correct? Yes, that is correct. I'm a son of the soil. <laughs> what can you tell listeners about Uganda, maybe who aren't familiar with the country and haven't been to that part of the world? Well, Uganda has, has quite a history, but for people who have not been here, I would quote Winston Churchill when he said Uganda is, is the pearl of Africa. And then he was talking about all these wonderful things that he found in the country that we are only now coming to appreciate. And why would you say Uganda is a great place for people to think about coming to visit? Well, first, I, I don't know any other countries around the world, to be more precise, around the equator, where you can walk from 38 degrees to zero or minus 10 degrees and experience snow. Then we also are host to about maybe 30% of the world's mountain gorillas were still uh, still out at large and all through i mean it's also host to i think the second biggest freshwater reserve and importantly it is the source of the nile ah okay all right so that's a, you say that with a smile which is great to see because that's that's something that you have a lot of pride in i can see yeah i mean it's if you've been rafting on the nile I'm pretty sure that's that's something that you'd go home and talk about. That's something you'd write home about. So I don't know any other places that, that have that much variety in such a small area. So today we're going to be talking about a hike in Uganda. Tell me a little bit about your history of getting into the activity of hiking. I studied for a while in South Africa. And during my time there, I met a few people who were outdoors. Then we hiked... Table Mountain, but at the time I can't say that I was particularly into hiking. And then when I came back to Uganda and I settled down, my brother, along with a group of other friends, decided to, to start a hiking group. And that is when I got into it. It was about maybe five years ago. We started hiking all over the country. Mountains, swamps, uh, national parks. We were, we were hiking along giraffes hiking with, just name it. We did all sorts of crazy stuff. And since then, I've never looked back. And is the hiking group the group Mountain Slayers Uganda? Yes, you have nailed it. <laughs> that is a fantastic name for a hiking group. I love that. Well, it's also quite a provocative name as well. Because now with, with the advent of words like a slay queen or... You know, like a slay queen meaning somebody who just goes to look pretty and look good and look dazzling. Oh, the origin being the slayer being somebody who actually conquers and somebody who takes down things. 
it has like a double play. So we own it. We say we're going to slay the mountain because we want to look good while doing it, but at the same time, we want to conquer it. So you said that you have gone all over the country hiking in different kinds of environments. Are there established trails throughout Uganda or are you mostly making your own paths? There are two categories. There are like the national parks, which would have established trails, and then the non-national parks, where chances are you have to make your own trail, but there's always like a village trail here and there. So you just follow them until you get to your final destination eventually. So today we're going to talk about the Rwenzori Central Circuit. And um, I've heard that you've hiked this more than one time. Have, have you hiked this trip several times? Yes, I have hiked the Renzori's about three times. Okay, and when was the first time you hiked it? The first hike I did was in 2017, about July 2017. How did that come about that you decided that you learned about this hike and that you ended up doing it? To be honest... At the time, because the mountain slayers would push out a calendar and in the calendar they would set dates throughout the year and activities that they're going to do. I only bothered with figuring out the dates, but not the hikes. So they'll be like, okay, in July you need seven days off because we're going to go on this epic adventure. I'm like, okay, cool, seven days off. Let me figure out how I can make my year work around that. And that's how I found myself a month, actually a month before going for the hike without any prior knowledge to it. Then they're like, oh, you're going to hike the Renzori's next month. I'm like, what? Okay, that sounds pretty cool. Um, seven days. Does that include travel, travel days as well? No, not so much. So you need like nine days. Okay, nine days, leave. Let's do this. That's more or less how I figured it. So did you have to do any of the planning or had somebody else plan the trip and you just showed up? I just showed up. I didn't do any of the planning, which was a very big mistake when I look back at it now. But yeah, it was well worth the learning experience. I'll put it that way. Did it go more smoothly the second and the third time? The second time was, was really rough because I was doing photography for a group of guys who were speed, uh, speed walking it or speed hiking it. So that was extremely brutal. I can't say, well, the planning again for that was a bit different. And then the third time, that was much, 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 much better. Now I knew the trails, I knew the connection routes, I knew everything and what gear I needed and what I could live without. So the, the third was by far the best experience. Who did you hike the trail with? You said the second time you hiked it with some speed walkers. What about the first time and the third time? Who did you go hiking with on this trail? The first time was with the mountain slayers. So we were a group of 14 people who went into the mountains. The second time we were with the two Ugandan speed climbers. One is called Haman and the other one is called Mwembu. They were trying to attempt to get in and out in under 24 hours. That's some crazy stuff. How did that work out? They summited in 19 hours and they got out in 20, about 26 or about 30 something actually. Oh, wow. That doesn't sound fun. It is not. Not in the Renzoris. It is not. <laughs> okay. The third time, who did you go with? The third time I was with a German. He's called Marcus Hackenbach. We he was doing a, a drive for a charity drive for there's a blind there's an organization that treats blind people so he was doing a charity drive to get donations and to get funds for people who actually who are interested in investing in ensuring that people can get another chance to see so that was the third time we did it it was a bit of an intense trip as well because we ended up doing instead of seven days we ended up doing ten he wanted to do a few other picks in the Renzori, so that, that was a twist to it. Okay. Uganda is at the equator, pretty much. So what time of year makes the most sense to do this hike? Okay, well, first a disclaimer. Renzori is a wet mountain. So irrespective of what I'm going to say after this, 
you should expect it to rain on you at least once you're there. And even if it doesn't rain, expect you're going to be wet at some point. That said, the best time would be the two times in the year. The first is December to Feb, when it is relatively not rainy. And then between June, July to about August. Those would be the best windows for, for you to, to try it. And how long of a hike is this and as far as distance and how much time? You said one week was sort of the first time you did it. Is that a pretty good amount of time to put aside to do this hike? For the central circuit, time on the trail, anywhere between, well, it depends on your relative fitness. But I would put, if you're just somebody who actually wants to go and enjoy the mountain, take your time, take the flora in, look at the animals. I would put it at seven days. About maybe 56 kilometers round trip. If you're super fit and you want to really push yourself, I would give you about four days. If you want to be an Olympian, I would say go and do it in under two days. (laughs) I don't think that's a good idea. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that. (laughs) All right. And this trip has a, a huge range of different elevations, as I understand it. There's a lot of altitude gain and also... The goal of the trip in the middle of the trip is Margarita Peak, which is very high, right? Yeah, that's true. But, okay, first to maybe explain the central circuit. The Renzori is is seven mountains in the ranges. So the central circuit encapsulates one of the mountains in the middle, and it is what they use to access like the best camps and the trails for the other peaks, the other mountains. Now, what happens with, because of its geography, it has very many different access points. And the shortest access point to the central circuit is the one which got christened the name central circuit. But then when you get in there, you have to get into this ring that takes you around all these different mountains. So because you're moving around different mountains, it's going up and down, up and down. There's no gradual elevation climb like like Kilimanjaro or something. It's just up and down all the way. So on some days you would get elevation gains of about 3,000, 4,000, and then on other days you just do maybe 500 or 200. So it really is an interesting scenic route that you take. And it sounds like a lot of work, basically, because you're going up and down the whole time. Well, when you say work, it's that's that's relative. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of play. That's the way I would put it. <laughs> good point. Very good point. And then Margarita Peak itself is at over 5,000 meters, right? Yes. Margarita is 5,100 and I think 9 or 10, somewhere there. And it, I think, well, as of the last time I was there, it's, it's mainly the Stanley Plateau, which is the huge glacier and the Margarita Glacier that are the last ones that are still mostly visible and hikeable. The rest are a bit dwindling at the moment, global warming and yeah. Sure. So if someone is to come to Uganda to do this trip, what should they think about as far as gear? Do they need, should they rent the equipment they need once they get there or should people bring their own equipment? What's the easiest way for someone who comes from out of the country to do this hike? Well, okay, this is again another like a twofold question. The first is, is the person already into mountaineering and already into hiking? If they are and they're into, that means they probably already have some of the gear. So it it would not make sense if you already have gear that you trust and gear that you're aware of to come and rent something that you're not sure of, especially if you don't have the limitation of weight. If you do have the limitation of weight, then the technical gear, like the crampons and the ice axes and harnesses and some of this and the safety equipment is available for rent. So that one don't bother. I would then strongly suggest that you put more emphasis on your own personal clothing. So like your base layers and your outer shells. So you're at least 100% warm and your sleeping bag because... We all have different tolerances to to the cold. So sleeping bag, that one I would strongly suggest you come with your own. Then another thing that I will not I will stress more and more and more and more and more 
rubber boots. Ah, okay. And that's for the, is that for the bogs? For the bogs. <laughs> okay. I've seen people come with, oh, my, my, my hiking boot is weatherproof and my hiking boot is waterproof. And no, that, that, that doesn't work very well there. So if you can't come with your, your own rubber boots, buy a pair when you get here. Okay, that's good advice. Do most people use a guide and porters or do most people carry their own equipment? Most people actually use guides and porters. The trails are, are well established, but there are sections of the trails that are not because the ball keeps growing and you have to keep figuring it out. And the porters, well, I don't know, I don't know how many people are able to carry their own weight in bogs. So we end up finding those a necessity. Okay. And are there particular companies that are better than others, or should people just do the research online and figure out what the best company might be? Well, the way I understand that it works is the companies are usually tagged because they have specific concessions to specific trails that they maintain. So it depends on which side of the Renzoris you would like to, to go through. But the two main ones would be Renzori Trekking Services. They have a trail that starts from southwestern side of the mountains. And then the other would be Renzori Rangers and Hikers Association. Those are the ones who have a trail that, that usually connects to Central Circuit much quicker. So if you have seven days and you're doing it quickly, I would say Renzori Rangers and Hikers. Okay, great. And what about um, as far as navigating? Obviously, if you have a guide and a porter, they can show you the way. But people often like to have a good map of an area that they're hiking in. Is there a particular map or resource or book or anything that might be helpful to people to look at to have for the hike? In terms of maps, old maps that we've found have been particularly helpful, but they're rare to find. Then in terms of books, there's a book called A Guide to the Renzoris, if you can get a hand on that. It's by Henry Osmaston. That would be a good resource, but that's also very rare. I think it's out of print. What we have found to be now quite sufficient is Mountain Slayers Uganda has actually taken the time to start trailing or doing trails on all trails online. So you should be able to get at least the digital map of the Renzoris of all the trail online. Yes. Okay. I did actually see that on the Mountain Slayers Uganda website. I saw that there was a map for this particular hike that was set out with, I guess, digital waypoints. So that seems like that's a great resource for people to use. How do you get to this trip? You have to fly to Kampala first and then fly to more local area? Yes, you can fly into Entebbe. That's about maybe an hour from Kampala by road. And then depending, you could either fly straight to Kasese or you could take, uh, you could go by, by road. By road from Entebbe to Kasese is about five hours, six hours. So you could take either. Okay. But whichever route you use, I would strongly suggest you plan to get there at least the night before or day before your hike. Okay. Are there a good accommodations in Kasese? Um, good is a relative definition. They're decent accommodations. <laughs> okay. Like, yeah, you, you, you will survive in Kasese. But if you say good and you're talking good to your standard, it's a Hilton. There's no Hilton in Kasese. No, no. My standard is a, is a tent and a sleeping bag. Then you will be fine in Kasese. <laughs> okay. All right. And I noticed, so this is a a trail where you start out on one trail and then there's a loop. Does it matter which direction people go? Do people always go the same direction on the loop? People prefer to go one direction on the loop simply because the other has more bog. Ah, okay. So is it better to be doing the bog at the beginning or the end? <laughs> That's the question. Or, or like, why would you choose one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, if, for instance, you want to do different mountains, then you have to to tailor your route to that specific part of the mountain you want to or part mountain you want to climb. But usually, they'll take you through the right side of the loop. They'll take you to the eastern side, not the west. They'll take you east and then you get out on the west. 
Okay. And does the Renzori's require a permit for hiking? Is that something you have to buy from the national park or is, do the guides and porters take care of that kind of situation? If you go through organizing it with a tour company, they will take care of, of, of all of that. Your food, your permits, and the logistics of everything that happens on the mountain. All you have to do is get there with your day pack and they will sort the rest out. Great. So we've been talking about this and in, in sort of the technical logistics of doing the hike, but I think what, what would be really helpful is to tell people what this area looks like and why it is such an a, impressive area and why it's something worth doing. Okay. So first, just a brief understanding of, of Uganda. We have only three World Heritage Sites. Yeah. The first is the ancient tombs of one of the kings. It's called the Kasubi tombs. This was in existence since, I think, 1800-something. The second is Windy Impenetrable Forest. That's the home of the mountain gorillas. And then the third is the Renzoris. So I've spoken all of these amazing things about Uganda, but somebody else came in and said, okay, this mountain is actually worth something. So they give it World Heritage Protection status. That said, what is gorgeous about the mountain is you have so many different climactic zones, so many different vegetation zones. From the time you step in, each day that you get, each day that you hike, you get something different. It's a different scene. It's a different, like basically, if there's a day that you're on the Renzori's and you don't experience something new, it would be a strange day for you. And what kind of different things are you going to see? You've mentioned, we've mentioned bogs. And then there's also obviously these high peaks. What else are you going to see? Well, okay, bogs, I would say you're going to experience. That's looking down. Nobody ever enjoys looking down. But first, <laughs> so in terms of vegetation zones, there's the bamboo zone that you actually have to walk through. And then in the bamboo zone, there are some mountain dikers. Those are like some small little antelopes. If you're lucky, you get to see them. There's a three-horned chameleon which is a very rare species, very rare. But that's in the lower bamboo zone. And then you get to like the heather zone where the vegetation begins to change a little bit. And then my, my favorite is the moorland. It looks like it's a scene in Lord of the Rings or I don't know, like a strange planet, planet if you see the photos there. On my last trip there, the German looks and said, you know, if a four-legged ant that is 20 meters high came waltzing past us, it would look, it would look right in. Like, I would not question my sanity at this point. <laughs> so it looked that amazing. And then you get to the snow lines. Well, the glacier is, is slowly reducing, but there are two highlights for me there. The first are the, the cornices, which is towards the Margarita Peak this beautiful snow rhine. It looks like ice, you know, like wind was flowing and then it froze in the motion. So I, I haven't seen that anywhere else and I'll be excited to see it, but that is something worth, worth a million words. Along this trip, you stay in different huts, right? Tell me a little bit about what the huts are like and how that works. They are a combination of huts and shelters depending on the trail that you use. So the huts, if you have a good sleeping bag, it's it's pretty it's nice, it's decent enough. There's still a bit chilly in there. So you I would say if you're not very good with the cold, carry a nice warm sleeping bag. And how that works is if you have already organized the logistics of it, they would already have packaged that for you. So your meals and your accommodation for the night would be in the entire package that you've got. So all you just have to do is make sure you get there. If you're too slow, there is a very distinct possibility that you can pitch tent in the mountain. But uh, I've done that a few times. It's not the best of experiences because it's wet. So sometimes you feel like you're in a, a leaking waterbed. 
<laughs> are the huts a very basic accommodation with just a place to sleep or is there a kitchen where you can prepare food or how what what else does the hut have besides just a bed it, it's it's basically all the huts would just be sleeping and then a small little like living communal space but in that tenting area there's a place where the people get to cook where the if you've gone with potters they there's a little designated area where they get to cook which is outside and then there's some wash facilities also nearby but i don't know many people who go and shower that much in the renzori so there's that okay so i thought it might be helpful to go through a, a an example itinerary of what a seven-day trip might look like and the mountain slayers uganda website had a really helpful description of an itinerary and that's where i i got my information from the first day that they list in on the website is starting at the park gate and then going to the Naya Bitaba hut, which is about a six or seven hour hike. Can you talk a little bit about what, if you were following that itinerary, what would that day be like? That would perhaps be, I would call it the most chilled day because it's not as hot. Well, it's, it's actually really hot. So if you are, you can just dress normally. You don't have to put on any extra warm clothing it starts at the park gate and it's a gentle ascent it's a gentle climb so you just keep slowly and you go past like a couple of rivers in between so it would be like introduction to the base of the mountain that's the first day that's what i would call it exciting because well you are so far away from civilization and all through it, you just listen to the gushing wind of, of the water and the rivers flowing by. So you're walking along the riverside, getting to the first hut, which is Navitaba. Okay. And that first hut is at 2,651 meters. And so you've already climbed. I think it said that the trip starts at 1,615. So you're already, even though it's a gentle day, you're going up 1,000 meters still almost. Yes. In the first day, you do about, about 1,000 yeah, that's about it. It's my least exciting day. <laughs> okay. And the second day is from the Nayabitaba hut to the John Mate hut. And that's about seven or eight hours of hiking. And that gets you up to all the way to 3,500 meters. And that looks like you're going through some different kinds of terrain to get to that level. Yeah. Okay. So the first day would be tropical forest or what I'd understand as a tropical forest. And then the second day when you're getting to John Mate is through Bamboo Zone. That's when you begin with the bogs. So all through it, you're hiking in slippery rocks. The trail begins to mix between rock and bog and mud. So all through that, you're going up and down, up and down. This is when the Renzori starts getting exciting. And at this point, you should begin getting glimpses of the other different mountain peaks. And then at, this is the day when I think the entire challenge begins to dawn on people, that it's actually not going to be a walk in the park. Okay, and then the third day is to the Bajuku hut. And that seems like a little bit shorter day as far as elevation gain and time. Um, but there's still more bogs, and then there's a lake at this um, part of the trip as well, right? Yes. Now... From John Mate to Bujuku, you cross two giant bogs. They have actually built boardwalks there because they were practically impassable before. I think in the planning and in the estimation of the days before, those bogs were a real problem. Then the lake, oh, the lake is gorgeous. So there's a, there's a bit of a steep climb just before you, you are hitting Bujuku. And then when you get to Bujuku itself, there's a huge bog between the boardwalks and the lake and the camps. That takes the most amount of energy ever. The trail disappears and you're just walking and you're figuring out, oh, I have to go left, I have to go right. You just know what general direction you have to go. And thankfully, there's always one or two guides in front of you. But that's, yeah, that's when, for me, that's when the mountain begins to kick in. So you're also walking through the three biggest mountains, which would be Mount Stanley, Mount Speak, and Mount Becker. 
So Bujuku is just like like a base camp if you want to attack any one of those three mountains. Okay, and then the next day is to the Elena hut. And that one, you get a pretty high elevation now. You're getting all the way up to 4,500 meters. So day four is, I think, the shortest of the hikes, or the shortest day of the hikes. First, because the next day you're going to, that night, you need to wake up early to hit the summit. But that said, it is also among the steepest points of the hike. You start in the Moa land, you get through all these bogs, and then you get to this nice rocky section, then you get to the camp at Elena. If you're lucky, you will not be rained on. If you're unlucky, you will get to Elena miserable. (laughs) But the view is worth it. Because at this point, you're able to see at least three mountains, and on a clear day, you can see maybe even up to four or five different peaks. All right. And then the next day is the summit. Can you tell me about summiting Margarita Peak? That's, I think, the the most challenging day. And the first day when you no longer need your your rubber boots, you start in this rocky section. There are about four fixed ropes by the time you get to the summit of Margarita. So you go up this I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it because you you start the hike practically at night and you can't see anything. So you're mainly relying on the guides, the guides instructions. And there's also not much of a trail. So you go up, up, up this steep section. Once you get to the top, you cross over the first glacier and then you have to go down back into the valley, which is about maybe... I don't know, you lose about 500 meters and then you have to climb another 500 before you get to the the Margarita Glacier. You find another two fixed drops there to get onto the glacier. It's actually a very, very steep and very demanding point for many people. So you go up and around all through the Margarita Glacier. That's, I think, the paradise that most people find because now it's not hard work anymore until you get to just below the peak there's another fixed rope there that you have to... Oh. If you're lucky, it would be snowing, so it is not as bad. If you're unlucky, it's dry and it's a slippery rock. So you all the way, all the time, from the time you get onto the Margarita Glacier, you're in your crampons, you're exerting a lot of energy. Climate sometimes keeps changing. One thing I would strongly recommend at this point is you always have a pair of sunglasses with you because the reflection, the glare can sometimes be quite a bit... But the summit, not very eventful, to be honest. How is the view? That's the problem with the Renzoris. You may be lucky, you most likely be unlucky. I've, never, I've only gotten a nice view of the summit at the summit once. Every other time it's just clouds and just snow. This one time we went up and it was nice and we were supposed to enjoy the view, but when we got there it was just cloudy. And on our way back down... The entire rock surface had been, there was like a hail, and the entire rock surface was just full of snow. So not only were we not able to see, um, we were sliding our way down. So it wasn't very, not the most ideal of circumstances. If you notice, most people at the summit, it's just a little focal point when the person is in the photograph, and then everything behind them is white. So Margarita is not very kind with with good weather for summits. And what about the the day six and day seven return trip? Is there anything notable on the return trip? So day six is when, if you are lucky enough and you're going down through Chitandara, that's another gorgeous day. There's a lake at Chitandara Hut. And I kid you not, that is one of the world's biggest mirrors. The water is so still because usually you get there at night, you don't, you don't quite observe it, you're tired, you've had a very long hike day. The next morning, if you are not careful, you just walk into the river thinking you're just walking on land. The lake is gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. 
There's not a single breeze in sight, so it's just perfectly still. That's one of my favorite days. Just get there and you look at a perfect reflection. And then day seven is you go through these amazing caves that they say the first explorers used to stay under. But mm, I don't know about staying there. So day seven is mostly bog to get out of the mountain and it's no not not everybody's favorite day because people are already tired you want to get out so as you look back on the three hikes that you've done in the renzores what is the most impressive thing about this trip and why do you think people should consider doing this hike i think the most impressive is the sheer immersion in the wilderness you get the experience that no one has been here before. Do you have a favorite memory from the three trips that you've done? Favorite memory would be the day we summited Mount Speak. And for the first time, I got to see two mountain ranges and the actual formation of, of how they are separated. It was the first time we also got a clear summit photo with what we would assume to be a beautiful view and a beautiful background where you can see for miles and miles and miles around. That would be for me the most memorable experience. Tim, thank you for telling me about the hike. I wanted to ask a few more questions before we go. What is one piece of gear that you don't leave home without? That, I would say, is my camera. Is photography important to you when you hike? I think photography is the art of actually being able to keep the memories alive. And that, for me, is important. And one of the tools that I use is the camera. So that is the important aspect. Not necessarily taking photos, but being able to embrace them and freeze them in time. What is one hike or trip that you've done besides this one that others shouldn't miss out on? To go into Congo. I don't know how you'd manage that now, considering all things that are done. And hike a mountain called Nyiragongo. It's an active volcano. But, well, it's active from a distance. So when you get to the summit of the mountain, you can actually see the lava boiling from down below. Gorgeous, breathtaking, and quite scary at the same time. That is one of the things I'd recommend anybody does. And it's not even a very difficult hike. You can get to the summit in about five hours, spend the night there, and then you get off. What is the next trip on your list? The next trip is going to be... Batyan summit of Mount Kenya and we're going to be carrying all our gear and doing all of this technical stuff so excited about that and a bit nervous how long of a hike is that how many days Kenya is typically maybe five days six days but we will need to rope in another three days to do the summit they tell us it's 18 pitches so kind of nervous about that Timothy Latim, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to me. The pleasure is mine. Thank you for taking the time to discover or rediscover Africa. Thanks again to Timothy Latim for coming on the show. So I hope that Tim and I have inspired you to hike the Renzori Central Circuit. And if you've enjoyed this episode, tell a friend about it. Or better yet, give us a good review on whichever podcast service you use. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Before we go, I want to preview our next episode. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we will hike a 28-mile stretch of wild space on the edge of a metropolis. 
will climb two significant peaks with amazing glimpses of not only the metropolis, but also beautiful San Francisco Bay. Yes, we are going back to California for a surprisingly wild, steep, and rugged trip through the golden rolling hills of oak savanna and riparian valleys that were once inhabited by the native people that the trail is named after. And then after that, Spanish missionaries, and then ranchers, and finally California adventure seekers like yours truly. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Ohlone Trail in the Coast Range of California. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode, or ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail you've hiked, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.